this morning we're starting a new series. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar with the way we do things at Village, we just, we'll just take uh, books and portions of the Bible and we'll just work our way through them. Uh, in most cases, literally just verse by verse and, and pulling out the main themes and, and really discovering what the Bible has to teach us. So we're, we're starting this series on the Sermon on the Mount. So show of hands, who's heard of the Sermon on the Mount before? Almost everyone in the room's heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the other day I was in a coffee shop and the guy who owns a coffee shop is not a Christian. Um, and I was, re- I was preparing for today. And I was reading, um, I was reading a book about it. And he said, oh, what are you reading? I said, I'm preparing for this uh, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, you know all that stuff. Like, do to others as you would have them do unto you. And he was like, I love that. I was like, what a great idea. Um, and I was like, well, that is a good idea. It's all a good idea, but some of it's a little bit harder to swallow than that, isn't it? Um, but the point is that most people have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. We have some idea of, of what it's about. Um, so this morning, the reason we start with this cliffhanger is because I want to, to do a bit of an introduction to it and, and to set the scene for what's really going to take us from now until the end of June uh, to go through three chapters, three months, three, chapter, three chapters of, of Matthew's gospel. Um, so in these three chapters, in, the, in this kind of uh, one setting, uh, Jesus um, lays out his vision for the kingdom of God. So he's saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. These are the values. These are the virtues. This is how people who are in the kingdom of God should live. Uh, and, he, and when he's doing this, he gives his followers like a way that leads to flourishing. Now, we don't often think of the word flourish, but, but really it's God saying, I've created a way for, for you to live. And when you live in that way, it's going to be well for you, right? It's, it, this is the best way to live. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm your king. And when you do what I say, it's going to be well for you. And so we are the people of Jesus. So if you're a Christian this morning, you're part of his body, you're part of the church, you're part of the kingdom. And so we need to know how to live in that kingdom. We need to know how to live as his people. So before we uh, get in, um, we're going to, before we get into the detail of the sermon, we're going to look at the, the little bit before what was happening around that time, uh, and we want to really ask ourselves a couple of questions this morning, and these are the questions I want to answer from the, the verses we just read. Firstly, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Because I think there's a lot of misconception out there. And secondly, uh, why, why bother studying it at all? Why, why would we go into it in so much detail? Why would we spend three months of the year, a quarter of the year, looking at three chapters of the Bible? So let me pray for us, and, and I'm going to ask for God's help uh, for me to teach you guys and for you guys to, to hear and understand what, what God has to say to us this morning. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even these words that were spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus in, in the Middle East are still as relevant and as powerful and as alive as they were on the day that he spoke them. Uh, Father, give us hearts to, to hear you this morning. Give us ears to understand. Uh, soften us, Lord. We need to hear from you. We're just like we children, and we don't really have a clue what we're doing, except that you teach us. Uh, so be with us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in November 2018, so November last year, just a few months ago, uh, a Dutch, uh, let me get this right, positivity guru, right? Don't know what that is, but I'd like to spend some time with him, because it sounds like fun. Uh, he started legal proceedings to legally change his age. Right? He, he wanted to change his age from being 69 to being 49. Joe's a sound appealing. So that's mean. That's really mean. I'm sorry. Uh, so he, so he's, his motivation was that his official age, what he calls his official age, what most of us should call our age, um, was that it didn't reflect his emotional state, didn't reflect the way he looks, um, and uh, he, was having, uh, he was having trouble finding work and love. So this is what he said, and it's a quote uh, from, the, from the newspaper article. It says, when I'm 69, I'm, I am limited. If I'm 49, I can buy a new house, drive a different car. And he goes on, he says, I can take up more work. When I'm on Tinder, and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. When I'm 49, with the face I have, I will be in a luxurious position. So you can get an idea of his motivations. And then he went on to say, he says this, we live in a time when you can change your name and your gender. Why can't I decide on my own age? 
Now, his case was ultimately rejected in the courts, um, and he, I think he's going to appeal it again. It was just came up this week, actually. Um, but has given rise to uh, what's called the, the moral case for trans age. So we can now, people can, there's a building moral case for being able to change your age. Literally, I don't have to be the age I am anymore. And, and so one, there was a, an article published in, I want to get this right, the Journal, Journal of Medical Ethics. And this article argues that a person should be able to legally change their age when, here's a quote, the person genuinely feels his age differs significantly, significantly from his chronological age or the person's biological age is recognized to be significantly different from his chronological age. So in other words, you should be able to change your age if you feel younger than you are and you look younger than you are. I definitely feel older than I am most days. And don't tell me if I look older than I am. I do, but it's hard, hard life. So why am I telling you this story, right? I'm telling you this story not so we can make fun of that guy. I, I really don't, that's not what Christians should do, right? We're, we're all presented with different moral ethics uh, and, and different moral choices. And, and I want to be clear from the outset that, that Christians should never make fun of people for those reasons. I just made fun of Joe, but that's different. <laughs> We are to respectfully disagree with people's moral decisions. Respectfully. The Bible's very, very clear on that. But we have a different set of, of morals, right? We live with different morals. But basically, I'm telling you, I'm telling you this story to point out that we live in an age where um, the moral values of our society are going through a bit of a change, right? I think that's fair to say. We'd probably all agree with that. So not so long ago, there was a common morality, right? Where, where most places in, in the Western world were, were based on what's called Judeo-Christian values. In other words, that's a saying that, that values that came essentially from the Bible. So laws were made on these things. Countries were founded on these principles. But then in the years after World War II, things started to change a bit because people had just gone through six years of hell, six years of, of, of really for the first time seeing uh, pictures and videos sent back from the front line of, of a, a war that covered basically the entire globe. There wasn't one person on earth who wasn't affected by this war. And so people decided to question what was right and what was wrong. And then during Vietnam, the slogan, uh, you probably have heard this, make love, not war, that became really, really popular. Because a lot of people saw it as an unjust war, and I'm not here to argue about Vietnam. And in the decades since that, since the 60s and 70s, freedom of choice and freedom of expression are kind of now the driving force behind politics, behind people's, behind people's decisions. It's the driving force of our culture, and I've talked about this before. Freedom of choice, freedom of expression. So now, any system that tells you how to live or how to behave, or what to believe, is, is rejected by the masses. Because why, why would someone else tell me how to live? Don't impose your beliefs on me. That's the kind of narrative of today, right? You do your thing, and I'll do my thing. Just don't impose your beliefs on me, even though that's contradictory, because it's saying don't impose your beliefs on me is you imposing your belief on me. That's beside the point. But I, I think if we're honest, and I find this very attractive, I find the idea of, you know, be, who you, be, be yourself and do your own thing and, uh, and, 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 and don't let me tell you what to believe, I find that very attractive. Firstly, because I like the idea of, of, of having Jesus, but I don't like the idea of Jesus telling me how to live, right? I like the idea of being saved. I like the idea that, that's, that knowing that my future is secure, but, but actually I don't really want to be told how to live right here, right now. I also like the idea of having Jesus in my life, but, but, but I don't want it to rub people up the wrong way, and I don't, I don't want to have to confront people. I don't want people to confront me. So it's much easier for me as a Christian to say, I love Jesus, but it's not really going to impact my life that much. And this is what uh, the Sermon on the Mount has to teach us, that there is a way to live, that there is a set of moral values that we live by, that we live as people of God. And then what comes from that is a way to live. And the system of belief that we live in, if we examine it, well, or this system of secularism and secular belief that we live in, it has its problems. I, another example I'll give you, and again, this is not to make fun or, or not to mock anyone. This is just showing you that, that, that the system of the age isn't working and that we need a better way to live. So just in, in the newspaper this week, um, it was published that um, 
basically it was a story saying that under current NHS rules, um, men who identify as women are being sent invitations for, for cervical screening. Right, so men who identify as women are being told to come and have their cervix screened. And then what, the, the, the adverse of that is that, 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 that women who identify as men are not being sent invitations for the cervical screening, which they actually need. And when you put together a moral value that says you can choose your gender and, and put together another moral value that says that, that, we need to, that, that no one should be discriminated against because of their gender. And by the way, I totally agree with that. You get a situation where people aren't getting the health care that they need. It's not working. I have a, I have a friend who is, on, on one hand, uh, this person is a militant vegan. Like, you know, demonstrations, the whole thing. Vegan, uh, I, 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 totally against the killing of animals for food or, or for products or whatever. But at the same time, this person is, 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 is pro-abortion. Abortion on demand. I mean, that, that, for me, there's a contradiction there. Right, And I'm, I'm saying this to show that, that, that we live in a world where when everyone, if we live in a world where everyone makes their own moral decisions and I am the ultimate arbiter on what is right and what is wrong, then we're going to run into difficulties here. We're going to run into contradictions. It's not going to work. And this is the world we live in. A world that's, that's low on morality but high on moralism. And what I mean by that is it's, it's do whatever you want, but also I'm going to tell you what to do. So don't impose your beliefs on me. That's actually imposing a belief on me. Or you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we'll be okay until the thing that you're doing rubs me up the wrong way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Glenn Glenn Scrivener. Um, He's a really interesting guy. He's he's, um, he's an evangelist for the Anglican Church. And uh, he's just really astute, really smart guy. And, and whenever the thing about, have you heard of the thing that Liam Neeson said recently about good Balmina man? Um, he said about um, the thing that happened when his friend was raped. Do you remember that, the whole controversy recently? When that happened and, and Liam Neeson started to receive all the backlash, and I'm not saying anything about that situation. What I'm saying is this guy's commentary was, we live in a world where everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. And that's kind of it, isn't it, right? Do whatever you want, but then as soon as something happens that you don't like, everyone on Twitter, Facebook, everything is jumping on them, saying you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, but how can you be wrong if we live in a world where I decide what's right and wrong? And so as Christians, we need to figure out how are we going to live? Who tells us what is right and wrong? This is the culture that we live in, the culture that we are called to be a counter to. The world, I would argue, needs the morals of Jesus, the values of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So this leads us to our first question this morning. What is the Sermon on the Mount? What exactly was it that Jesus was preaching when he went up the mountain and sat down and opened his mouth and began to speak? What was he talking about? So we wanted to set this in the, I wanted to set this in the context of, of what Jesus was doing at this time. And that's why we went back before the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this we uh, the end section of Matthew chapter four. Keep your Bibles open as always. Um, Jesus or Matthew, uh, who wrote this gospel, one of Jesus' followers, he gives us this little summary of what Jesus was doing, and he does this on purpose, right? He's not he's not just he's not just uh, summarizing what Jesus was doing, and he, and he doesn't want us to have the words of Jesus outside of the context of Jesus' life, and so he's doing more than show us that that Jesus practiced what he preached, even though he did, he's showing us that the message that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, came with authority. So Jesus was going around, and what was he doing? He was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And everyone brought their sick to him, and he was healing those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. He healed them. And so in this wee summary, we get this idea that, that, that Jesus has authority over the physical world, and he has authority over the spiritual world. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing the sick. And, he, and Jesus then is able to open his mouth and speak with authority because he lives with authority. In other words, what Matthew is showing us, what we need to get right at the start of this Sermon on the Mount, is that, that Jesus works display the kingdom of God, and his words proclaim the kingdom of God. And Matthew includes this, and he's making a point. He's saying, 
this guy that's about to open his mouth and start to speak, you need to listen to him because he's the one that's healing all the sick. He's the one that's doing all these miracles. He's the one that's casting out demons. Now imagine if I came in here uh, this morning and I was like, okay, who's interested in um, listening to my talk about uh, my, my key to success as a top flight football manager? You'd have to be an idiot to listen to me. I don't know anything about football. I mean, I have some ideas, but I don't know anything. Now, imagine if Sir Alex Ferguson came in, best day of my life. Imagine if he came in and he says, I'm going to run a seminar on the key to being a successful football manager. You'd be an idiot not to listen to him because he's proven by his life that he has some skill and some gift in managing a football team. And it's the same. This is what, this is what, this is what Matthew is doing for Jesus. He's saying, he's pointing out, he's pointing to the Lord Jesus and he's saying, you better pay attention to what he's saying because what he's about to preach, he's already practicing. What he's about to to say, he's already showing. What he's about to proclaim, he's already displaying. Look who's speaking to you. He's this guy who's casting out demons. He can heal the sick. He's removing people's afflictions. So set up and pay attention. And this is why we want to start here this morning. But what exactly does Jesus have to say? Because Matthew, again, gives us a clue. Look at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, a village, you'll hear us, I hope you will, and, and I hope you do it as well, talking about this word gospel all the time. We talk about the gospel. We talk about the gospel of Jesus. We talk about the good news. That's what gospel means. It literally means good news. So back in the olden days, in the olden days, the days of yore, back in the days of yore, there, um, this word, uh, the, the word that's translated here from Greek into um, gospel, this was uh, when uh, there would be one person who would run back from, the, from the, the, the front lines of a battle and he would bring the news of the victory. It was called the Evangelion. It's where we get evangelism and evangelize. The gospel. He would bring the gospel back. We won the battle. And this is, what, this is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing the good news of the kingdom. And if you read through the gospels, and particularly Matthew, Matthew's gospel, you'll notice this word kingdom an awful, awful lot. No one can deny that this was the key point of all Jesus said, was the kingdom, right? So the word kingdom is used in Matthew's gospel alone 55 times. 55 times. The word, the, the term kingdom of heaven is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount in three chapters, seven times. Seven times in a short, a short sermon, Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven. So we know that it's pretty important, right? Matthew wasn't able to use italics and, and bold font and all the rest of it to make his point. So, so he repeats this, and Jesus repeats this theme over and over again. So we start to catch on and go, hold on a second, the kingdom is more something I should pay attention to. This is really important. This is the key point of Jesus' teaching. And so before we get into the Sermon on the Mount proper next week, into the, the content of it, we need to recognize that the kingdom is the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom. And we're going to hear that an awful lot. Even next week, when we get into the very start of it, the, the very first uh, lesson, if you like, in the, kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not going to preach next week's sermon, um, but already he's just saying the kingdom of heaven. So I wonder uh, what you think of when you uh, hear the word kingdom, right? So for me... Uh, still being like a 12-year-old boy in, in my head, uh, I think of castles, knights, horses, battles, all those kinds of things. Uh, maybe, maybe you conjure up similar images when you think of kingdom, right? I'm the king of the castle, all that, all that kind of thing. But this isn't, the, this isn't the kind of kingdom Jesus is talking about. In John 18, uh, towards the, the, the end of his ministry, when, when Jesus is arrested, he's standing before, uh, on trial before Pontius Pilate. He was the, the Roman governor of, of, of the area at the time. And he has to give an account for himself. And he says this. He says that his kingdom isn't of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would be fighting for me not to be handed over. In other words, if, my, if the kingdom I was bringing was like any other earthly kingdom, then I would, I would have let Peter chop that guy's head off. And I would have told me other guys to pick up their swords and start fighting for me as well. But he says, my kingdom isn't of this world. My kingdom doesn't work the way you think a kingdom should work. You see, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, these, these two phrases are exactly the same. They mean the same thing. The kingdom of Jesus isn't like any earthly kingdom. 
So what is it? What is the kingdom and why is it good news? Why is it the gospel of the kingdom? The good news of the kingdom. Well, the word kingdom here means the realm in which a sovereign king rules. Kingdom is the realm in which a sovereign king rules. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, anytime that word kingdom is used, it never refers to a physical place. It never refers to a kingdom with, with physical borders. What it always, always refers to is Christ, King Jesus, ruling in the hearts of his people. The church, us, his followers, you and me. You see, the core, king, the core meaning of kingdom is God's kingly rule. It's him sovereignly ruling in our hearts, in the hearts of his people. And this is what Jesus has come to do, right? He's come to, to establish God's rule. He's come, he's come to establish God's kingdom, God's reign and rule. And how does he do that? Well, he gathers a people for himself to reign over, to rule over. See, a long time ago, human beings used to live under God's reign and rule. The first human beings, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were living in God's place under God's rule. God's people, God's place, God's rule. And it was great. And they were in the garden and they had everything they needed. They had each other. They had a perfect relationship with God. They had food. They flourished and when they obeyed God's word, go forth and multiply and don't eat these things, they would flourish. But what happened is we rejected God's rule, didn't we? We said, actually, I don't want anyone telling me how to live. I can be like you, God. I can make the decisions on what is right and what is wrong. And what happened is human beings left God's kingdom. We left God's rule. And so Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God and establish it on earth. And, so he's do, and he's doing this by saving a people for himself and renewing the world. So in Village, uh, we, 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 we have this saying, which is like joining God in the renewal of all things. That's what we do as the kingdom of God. We are part of the kingdom of God and we are in the business of joining God as he renews the world, as he is reclaiming and restoring and renewing everything for himself. He's saving people to himself and he's making a really good place for them to live. He's saving people for himself and he's renewing the world for his people to live in and enjoy and flourish. From next week, we're gonna hear a lot about this word flourish and we're gonna look at what it means and we're gonna look at, it's all over, it's all over this sermon. Flourishing are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is why the coming of the kingdom is good news. This is why Matthew says he went around and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Because Jesus going around, he said, here, listen, you see all the brokenness and all the pain and all the suffering and all the death and all the ways you mess things up and all the ways you hurt each other and all the ways that everybody is going to die? He's like, I've come to fix that. I've come to bring a better way. I've come to bring this beautiful way that we can all live. You see, the, kingdom of, the, the gospel of the kingdom is an invitation. That's what it is. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation. It's an invitation to enter into the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom of God, to submit to the lordship of Jesus, to say, Jesus, you're Lord, and, and I'm going to, actually, you have the words of eternal life, and I'm going to follow your ways because I trust that what you're saying is the best way to live. And when we do that, when we do that, we find that the kingdom is the best way to live. It's actually how we were created to be in the first place. We were created to live as God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we will actually put it into practice as his followers, as Jesus' followers. We find that, that his way is so, so good. He says that his burden is, li or his burden is light. I forgot to, to turn this over, but I'm going to turn the page so I can read it for you. Just as, we, uh, just as we sang that song, all who are thirsty, all who are weak. This is what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who feels like they're laboring a lot at the minute? I do. Who feels like they're heavy laden? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Who doesn't want rest for their soul? Who wants to stop striving? 
Who wants things to make sense? And this is what he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what the kingdom, this is what the gospel of the kingdom is. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. John Piper says this, through Jesus, God, the King, is coming in a way, a new way into the world to establish his saving rule. First, in the hearts of his people and in their relationships by triumphing over sin, Satan, and death. Then, by the exercise of his reign, gathering a people for himself in congregations that live as citizens of a new allegiance of the kingdom, not of this world. Then Christ will come a second time and complete his reign by establishing a new heavens and a new earth. And this is where we are now. So we, we live between Jesus' first coming when, when he established the kingdom and, and his second coming when he'll come to complete his work. We live in, in the now and not yet of the kingdom. And we're gonna, that's another theme that's going to come up right through this. It's already present but not yet present. Already present but not yet arrived. So those of us who follow Jesus, we, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that we're freed from living in the bondage of this world. So when it comes to things like morals and it comes to things of knowing how to live, we don't listen to what the world says, we listen to what Jesus says. Because he's freed, him, freed us from all that stuff. He said, my way is better. Uh, Paul, writing in, in, to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he refers to the church as ambassadors. I love that word. We're ambassadors. I just make you think of the Frere Rocher ads, you know. Um, oh, wow, I do love those. Um, like, imagine, imagine an ambassador for a country, and she goes to a foreign country. So imagine, uh, for example, imagine uh, an ambassador, the, the ambassador, the ambassador to China from Ireland, right? When she goes to China, it's really important that she doesn't try to be Chinese. It's really important that she is Irish. When she goes to China, she stays Irish. That's really important. It's the same for us as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We are Jesus' ambassadors. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. That means wherever we go, we take the values and principles and rules and laws of the kingdom with us. We live as if we're living in it right now. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's showing us what the kingdom of God is like and how to live in it here and now. And we're going to get into why that's important. Because throughout history, God has been all about calling out a people for himself. Calling out people from the world and said, hey, this is the way to live. This is the right way to live. So if we go way back to Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis... He says, um, God says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Abraham, come and follow me. I'm making a people here. And God's promise was that he would bless Abraham. He was going to bless him and, 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 make, and make him um, a great nation. Him and Sarah. He's 99 and Sarah's 90 years old. They both laugh. Of course you would. And God's like, huh, for me, nothing's impossible. And Sarah gets pregnant. And the nation begins. Unbelievable. Calling out a people for himself. Live in this way. I will show you how to live. And we see the same thing in Moses. Moses, uh, Moses uh, uh, calling out. Calling out the people of Israel. Uh, God says, Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt. According to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. He said, I am your God, you're my people. Don't live the way the people of Canaan do. Live the way I'm going to teach you to do. You're my ambassadors. Jesus, what does Jesus do? The first thing he does, call his disciples. Calls out a people. And we see this uh, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's specifically speaking to his disciples, even though uh, there were obviously crowds listening in on this as well. And we'll see that later on. <laughs> later on in the Sermon on the Mount, not later on today. But He's calling out a people for himself. And he's saying, he's saying uh, come out of the world's darkness and live this way. Follow my way. It's a better way. It's light and it's easy. He says, you, uh, later on in the sermon, or actually early on in the sermon, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, there's a point to this. And the point is that he calls a people out for himself and while we're here, 
while we're ambassadors, we are to show people what the kingdom of God is like. He's calling us to shine. He's calling us to shine the light, his light, into this dark world. So when there's confusion over morality, we say, well, actually, look at this. This actually works. And just like a city that's on a hill, that can't be hidden. You see the lights. The city on a hill is just lights at nighttime. You see the lights. You can't turn that off. It should be the same with us, Jesus said. He's calling us to be a beacon of life, a beacon of light that shines into the darkness. Why? Because it guides people to Jesus. It guides people to the kingdom. It shows people what Jesus is like. It shows the world what the world will one day be like when Jesus comes and fulfills his kingdom. So what does this mean? It means that, well, when we're single, we're single in a kingdom way. We live knowing that our satisfaction and fulfillment doesn't come from, from, from a partner. It comes from Jesus. And if we're married, then our marriage reflects the kingdom of God. Showing people that, that, that exactly how Jesus loves his people in a committed, a committed, lasting, permanent way with fidelity and honesty. And that our satisfaction and fulfillment doesn't come from our husband or wife. It comes from Jesus. And our work and our business, we, we conduct ourselves in a way that's the kingdom way, right? We don't, we don't cheat people. We don't try and just get all the money. We, we don't store up treasure on earth. We store up eternal and heavenly treasure. And our sexual ethics, we reflect the kingdom of God. So everyone is valued for who they are, made as a precious child of God, made in the image of God. Not an identity based on your gender or who you sleep with. In all these areas, in every area of life, Jesus is saying, here's a better way. My way is better. It's beautiful. It works. You're going to flourish. This is why we sing that song. Jesus is better. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In all my victory, in every victory, Jesus is better. Another illustration in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, <laughs> you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, Jesus is calling us to a different standard. He's calling us to perfection. But to be perfect, really? That seems like a stretch. <laughs> For me, definitely. I am far from perfect. Close. No, not close. Far, far from perfect. Now, there's no way that we can aim to be perfect, especially the perfection that's God, but, but that's not what we're asked to do. The, perfect, the word perfect here means uh, uh, being mature and complete in our faith. And this is what we should be striving for. This is what Jesus is calling us out to. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a calling out to a different, a better way of life. And so Jesus says, we're not to be like the world. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not to, to be like those who have religions with vain repetitions. We're not to be uh, like hypocrites. And so the question then is, by what standards are we to live our life by? If the world gives us a million different ways to live, and, and if there's so many different voices in that, and if the world says, you choose what's right and what's wrong for you, then, then actually, how do we negotiate that? What standards are we to live by? Well, this is why the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Because it teaches us how to live. It teaches us what's important. It teaches us how to treat people. It teaches us how to handle our money. It teaches us about marriage. It teaches us about sex. It teaches us about anger and retaliation. It teaches us how to pray. And in teaching us all these things, Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And ultimately, he, the king of the kingdom, who rules and reigns in our hearts as his followers, ultimately what he's saying is, I am better, come and follow me. It's an invitation, it's a calling out. This is what the Sermon of the Mount is. So that's the what of the Sermon on the Mount. What about the why then? Why, the second question is, why study the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, why would we listen to Jesus? Why should we put his way of life into practice? We've already looked at how we find it hard. I don't like being, being told what to do. I know what's best for me. I, I see this in myself all the time, right? So if Haley asks me to do something, which she rarely does, but she, my first response is, why, why would anyone tell me what to do? Why should I listen to you? Don't tell me what to do. In my heart, I never say that. Maybe I do, I don't know. But in my heart, that's my response. My response is, don't tell me what to do. I'm the God of my life. And, become, and those moments become like a magnifying, magnifying glass for my own 
selfishness and self-centeredness. And, and I would suggest that we're probably, probably all the same, the same way. So why listen to Jesus? Why would we want to willingly allow somebody tell us how to live our lives and what to believe? Well, we've already seen that, that Jesus displayed his authority through his actions, right? Uh, that he was healing the sick. That, that he showed that he had dominion over the, the physical world. He had dominion over the spiritual world. But there's a few more clues in the start of chapter 5. This is why we, we, we finished on that cliffhanger this morning. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5. It says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now everything in scripture is there for a reason. And Matthew is no different. Matthew's a really, really clever writer. So he's painting pictures all the time. There's always multiple layers going on. And there's three things that we need to, to look at as to why we should listen to what Jesus has to say. And here's the three things, and we'll go through them one by one. Firstly, we see that he goes up the mountain. Secondly, we see that he sits down. And thirdly, we see that he opens his mouth. So Jesus went up the mountain, right? So when we hear that, it might not mean that much to us. Maybe it's about, oh, well, seeing the crowds even up on the mountain. Some people, if you see a crowd, they'll be like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going up the mountain. And maybe that was true. Or maybe we think, well, there were no microphones in those days, so I want to get up high so that my voice can carry uh, and I'll be able to teach clearly. And maybe that's partly true as well. But there's another significant thing going on here. See, for people in the ancient world, everyone who's reading this and listening to this, they would know instantly what going up a mountain meant. So in the ancient world, high places were the places where, where gods spoke, where gods ruled, where gods laid down their wisdom and their advice and their decisions. Gods lived on the mountain. So in, in Greek mythology, in the, Greek, Greeks, the, the, Greeks, the ancient Greeks believed that, that, that the 12 gods lived on, on, on the top of a mountain, Mount Olympus. If you've ever seen any film with Jared Butler, you know what I'm talking about. That seems like all he does. Sorry, Jared, if you're listening to this. Don't he is. And it's the same for the Jews. The Jews in Jesus' time, they had their, their traditions and beliefs as well about mountains and high places. So if you look throughout the Old Testament history and into the New Testament. So Mount Ararat. You heard of Mount Ararat? Mount Ararat is the mountain where the ark, Noah's ark, came to rest after the flood. And what happened there, at that point, God made a covenant with his people and said, I'm never going to destroy, I'm never going to destroy the world by a flood ever again. In Mount Carmel, you ever heard of Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel is where, where God used the prophet Elijah to defeat all the pagan gods. So all these pagan gods were challenging Elijah. And, 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 uh, and, and, God, and, and God blessed Elijah and said, you know what? I'm going to prove my authority. And so God, God poured down fire from heaven and consumed all the altars and, and proved that he is the only true God. Mount Zion. Just through the Psalms of Ascent, right? We've been talking about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is, is, the, is the mount where, where the temple is, where the dwelling place of God himself is, where Yahweh sat. In the Psalms of Ascent, we've been looking at people going up the mountain, haven't we? Going up to Jerusalem, going up to meet with God. Mountains are really, really significant. And this is what they mean. Mountains and high places in the Bible are where God stamps his authority. Where God says, I am God, and this is how you're going to live. And so people listen to this, uh, Old Testament, uh, sorry, first century Jews waiting for the Messiah, and this guy goes up the mountain, and suddenly their ears prick up. Because there's one particular mountain experience or, or mountain episode in Israel's history that he has in mind. So it's not, it's not that clear in our English Bibles, but in the Greek, the grammar that's used here points to Mount Sinai. You ever heard of Mount Sinai? So Mount Sinai is the mountain in which God gave uh, his law to, to the, to the uh, Old Testament Israelites. So what happened was they had been slaves for 500 years in Egypt. And then God, through Moses, called them out, brought them out of slavery. They came through the Red Sea. God miraculously saved them from destruction. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he takes Moses up the mountain and he, give, and he gives Moses the law. And that's important because on this mountain... Moses and the people receive the law which shows them how to live as God's people. 
They've been saved out of slavery and he brings them to the mountain. He says, this is how you're supposed to live now as my saved and redeemed people. And Matthew is comparing Jesus to Moses here. It's so significant. Jesus going up a mountain to dispense the new law of God, to dispense the way that we're supposed to live as the people of God. And he's not saying, well, this is a replacement for the Old Testament. It's more than that. He's saying, I am the new and better Moses. I'm the fulfillment of the law. He actually says this. He actually says this in the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfillment of the law. I can do for you what Moses could never do. I can, can fulfill all those covenants, all those laws. I'm the one who's been promised. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am your Savior. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it does tell us how to live as God's people. But first and foremost, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And when he goes up the mountain to teach them, that's what he's saying. So that's our first reason to listen to Jesus. Because he went up the mountain and he's our Savior. Secondly, um, seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He sat down. Again, maybe that wouldn't mean much to us on our first reading, um, but by sitting down, Jesus is actually positioning himself as the teacher, right? So in our day, most of the time, teachers will stand. So you go to a classroom, teacher's standing. I'm standing right now teaching you guys, all those kinds of things. Uh, but but in, in Jesus' day, Teacher sat down. That was the position of authority. That was like, gather around, kids, I've got something to say. And you see this right throughout the Gospels, Jesus sitting down to teach. And so by sitting down, Jesus is saying, I am the teacher, and you need to listen to me. He's positioning himself as the teacher. But it's Matthew writing, so there's a couple of other letters here. He's saying, well, we've already seen that, that the kingdom of God is, is this now and not yet. The gospel of the kingdom is now and not yet. And when Jesus sits down, he's pointing to the, the, the coming day, the not yet part of the kingdom. When, when Jesus sits down to give the vision of the kingdom, he's pointing forward to what he is right now after his resurrection. Does that make sense? So at this point, he hadn't died and rose again. But when he sits down to teach, he's pointing forward to a time after his resurrection when he would sit down at the right hand of God. This is what Hebrew, and, and, and that language, sit down at the right hand of God, that's all over the New Testament. Here's one verse from Hebrews 10, which says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is where Jesus is now, sitting at the right hand of God. His work is complete. Sitting at the right hand of God, that's the place of authority. That's the place of ultimate authority. And so he's sitting down, he's saying, I'm not only the teacher, I'm the teacher with ultimate authority. I'm the one you have to listen to. He's the only one who has the ultimate authority to tell us how to live. The only one that deserves our authority, or our, 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 um, our, our servanthood. The only one who deserves us to fall down and worship him. The only one who deserves us to give him an ear to listen. Because he's the teacher, but he's the teacher with ultimate authority. So we see that, that he went up in the mountain, he's our savior. Um, he sat down, he's our teacher with authority. And 30 then, he opened his mouth. So verse 2 says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So you might think, well, that's pretty obvious, because unless he's a ventriloquist, he had to open his mouth to teach them. But I don't think that, I don't think that Matthew's saying that Jesus wasn't a ventriloquist. There's something else going on here. There's a deeper layer to it as well. See, this phrase, open his mouth, is always used when someone has something important to say. So when someone is about to say something that's going to change lives, that's going to make a change, then it'll usually say something like, he opened his mouth. He opened his mouth and began to teach. A similar phrase is used in Acts on the day of Pentecost when Peter, in front of the crowds, begins to preach and it changes things then, because like 3,000 people get saved in one day. And so he opened his mouth. Matthew's saying, you need to pay attention because something important is coming. So he goes up the mountain. He's our savior. He sat down. He's our uh, teacher with authority. And he opened his mouth. He has something important to tell us. This is why we listen to Jesus. Because he's all three of these things. 
And so we put all that we've talked about this morning so far, we put all of that together. What does it mean? Why did I decide to, that we should start with this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount? Why not just get to the good, juicy bits that are going to tell us how to be good Christians? Because that's fundamentally not what it's about. Jesus doesn't want to create a horde of robots, drones. He wants people who love him. Because it's all about Jesus. It's always all about him. All of these things we've looked at point to who Jesus is. And listen, right here in week one of this series, if we don't get who Jesus is, then we'll never get anything that he has to say. Sure, we can learn how to turn the other cheek. And sure, we, we can learn how to, to uh, not get divorced. And sure, we can learn how to do all these things that Jesus teaches us to live. But we'll never get the kingdom. We'll never enter the kingdom if we don't get who Jesus is. And the truth is, we all live by some set of moral values. Whether you have faith, whether you don't. Even in the world around us, we're only deciding what their own moral values are for themselves. So we need to decide, what are we going to live by? So here's my challenge for us this morning. Before we even think about individual things in the Sermon on the Mount, before we even think about moral decisions in our lives, before we even think about how we're going to live, we need to confront this one question. This one question that, that seems like Matthew is dying to ask us, that he's just glaringly obvious when you break this thing down, and it's this, who is Jesus to you? What does Jesus mean to you? Because the truth is, you have to decide, Right? And even if you're not deciding, you're still making a statement about what your answer is to that question. And the truth is, every human being at some point in history is going to have to answer that question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a teacher? That, I mean, no, there's no one exists now, I don't think, um, that has been proved beyond doubt that Jesus actually really did exist as a man. But is he just a teacher that went up a mountain 2,000 years ago and said some things about how to live? Because if that's true, if that's all he is then he's just another moralizing voice and the plethora of voices out there that tell us how to live. He's just another voice. He's just some old dead teacher. And, and if that's all he is to us, then his voice is going to be drowned out. And if that's all he is to us, then we're never going to receive eternal life. We're never going to know what it means to live in the kingdom. We're going to struggle. Why do you think, if you're struggling to be a Christian, I know that sounds silly, if you're struggling to live with Christian values, if you're struggling to live out your faith, ask yourself the question, what does Jesus mean to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just some old dead guy? Or is he Lord? Because the only, alter, only, the only viable alternative to him being a crazy old dead teacher is that he actually is what he says he is. So C.S. Lewis, and this is my paraphrase, C.S. Lewis says that, that Christianity is either true or it's madness, right? If Christianity isn't true, then you can all tell me I'm a, I'm a fool. I'm an actual fool. Why would I stand up here every Sunday saying these things if this isn't real? Either Jesus has no authority, and we should all pack up and go home now, or he has ultimate authority. And if that's the case, then he demands everything. We owe him everything. And the truth is, I want us to realize this and I want us to keep saying this to one another, that Jesus is Lord. Amen? And you know how I knew that? Because he proved it, didn't he? He lived a perfect life. There was no sin in him. He lived a life of complete sacrifice for other people. All the things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, all the things we're going to learn over the next three months, he lived those things out. And then he died at the hands of his enemies. And he didn't die in a battle trying to defend what he, he believed in. He surrendered himself to his enemies for the sake of his enemies. You want to persecute me? Go ahead and kill me because that's the only way you're going to be freed from the slavery you're now in. He handed himself over to his enemies for his good. What kind of king does that? What kind of kingdom is that? And ultimately, he proved his authority when he rose from the dead. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And his kingdom didn't, his kingdom didn't end when he died. His kingdom didn't die, stay in the tomb with him. Jesus, three days after he died, walked out of the tomb. And that's when his kingdom started. His kingdom began when he defeated death and walked out of that tomb. The stone was rolled away and he walked out. 
He beat the very thing that has been the curse of every human being that's ever lived. We all die, and he beat it. There's no more death. And then his work was complete when he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the place of ultimate authority. You know why the ascension of Jesus is so important? Often I think that we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we absolutely 100% should. But let's not forget the ascension, because you know why that's important? Because Jesus, in human form, is sitting in heaven right now. And that means that my place there is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. That's why, the, that's why the ascension is so important because there's a place for you because he's already there. And so you see, Jesus is Lord. He's the king. And one day, listen, the Bible tells us that every knee is gonna bow. Every knee is gonna confess that he is Lord. So we as his people, we start now and we say, Jesus, you are Lord. Only in you can we find true life. Only in you can we enter into the kingdom. Only in you can we be saved. Uh, I, was thinking about, I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking about the disciples. Uh, I mean, sometimes we laugh at them, don't we? Um, But I would have been exactly the same had I been there. I was thinking about them. So they're Jewish guys. They're looking forward to the Messiah. They knew all the scriptures. And then uh, Jesus comes along, and Jesus is like, hey, you guys come and follow me. And they do, for whatever reason. I imagine he spoke with authority, and it was an attractive prospect to be asked to follow a, a rabbi. And then he's going around doing all these amazing things, isn't he? He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And maybe they're starting to get a bit excited. They're like, hang on a second. Is this kind of Messiah? And then he goes up a mountain. And they're like, oh my goodness, he's up a mountain. Oh, he's sitting down. Oh, he's opening his mouth. Imagine how excited they must have been. They They had front row seats. They were involved in Jesus' plan. The Messiah is coming. And he's setting up his kingdom. But I can't imagine for a second that they thought it would involve things like poverty or mourning or meekness or hunger or thirst or showing kindness or, or inward purity or making peace or persecution, going through persecution. They were probably thinking, this is going to be great. It's going to be about strength rather than weakness. It's going to be about being first rather than being last. Because if I was setting up a kingdom, that's what I would do. They were ready to make Jesus their king, but on their terms. They wanted a revolution. They wanted an oppressive government to be overthrown. But this isn't what Jesus taught, and it's certainly not how he lived. It's certainly not what he did. He came to be crucified. That's why he came. He came to die, not to sit on a throne, not yet anyway. And he would only be king through crucifixion and resurrection. And the disciples couldn't get their minds around that. I learned a lot from John Piper this week, and he says this one sentence I thought was great. He says, the kingdom of God would be most gloriously revealed in a crucified and risen and ascended king. He would only be king after he suffered and died, and then three days later rose from the dead. And so, as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, over the next number of weeks and months, we need to remember this one thing. Let's not let's not lose the fact that the emphasis of this sermon is on the king himself as the crucified, risen Lord of the universe. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's the lens that we need to read it by. And remember this one thing, Jesus Christ is Lord. So I say it again, who is Jesus to you? What does he mean to you? Is he just some crazy old teacher from 2,000 years ago or is he Lord because he can be nothing in between? And if he is Lord to you, then we, you owe him everything. And that's why we listen to this teaching. And that's why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray.